Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hello and welcome to Transplant's Take on Sport. My name's Lewis Daniels and my guest today is kidney transplant recipient Oliver Patrick Cahill. Oliver had never really been into sport until 2020 when he decided to change his lifestyle to make the best of his second chance at life. He now regularly takes part in jiu-jitsu training alongside regular walks and strength training. We'll be chatting about all of that, his transplant story and more, so make sure you stick around right until the end. He'll also be taking on a UFC-themed quiz in a new feature. If you're enjoying the podcast, please make sure you press subscribe or follow wherever you normally listen so you don't miss an episode. And if you'd like to follow the podcast on social media, all the links will be in the show notes. Oliver Patrick Cahill, welcome to Transmats Take on Sport. Hello. Thank you for coming on. Um, listeners, you may notice my, may or may not notice my voice. Might sound a bit different. I've been a little bit under the weather. I'm starting to get through the end of it now and we're back on a roll again. Now, Oliver, you, uh, you've had a kidney transplant, which people who follow the social media would have seen, and got into sport a bit later than a lot of people do. Much where... later. <laughs> and uh, your sport is is MMA, which we'll come on to later on in the podcast. But to start with, we'll go right back to the beginning again. And when did you first find out that something was wrong with your kidneys? So when I was um, eight years old, and it started with what we believe to be a, a, a general bug, sort of a, a 24-hour, 48-hour bug. And after it lasted a few more days than it should have done, my parents took me to see the GP who confirmed it was just a bug and it would pass after a couple of days. And I remember on the, the way home from the doctors, my mum wasn't happy with the doctor's decision and decided to take me to the hospital, which was Bradford Royal Infirmary at the time. So she took me to the hospital and uh, that's where it all began. I, I stayed in Bradford Royal for roughly two to three weeks while they tried to figure out exactly what was going on. Um, at one stage, they thought it was my appendix, so they'd bu- actually booked to remove my appendix. And the the next, I, w- I was very unwell in Bradford Royal for a couple of weeks. My, my skin started turning a yellow colour, my body was swollen. And then I was taken to St. James's in Leeds um, 
after, like I say, two, three weeks stay in Bradford, taken over to Leeds where I spent the next three months. So probably maybe two, two to three weeks of being at Leeds, I was then told that my kidneys were failing, which at age eight, it, it meant absolutely nothing to me. I had no idea. I mean, I'd be surprised if I knew what kidneys were at that time. I always remember just sort of doing a little nervous laugh when the doctors first said that your kidneys are failing or your it's end-stage renal failure. And that's when I first became aware of exactly what was happening. And then I stayed in St. James's for, like I said, I believe it was one day shy of three months. Wow. Initially. I mean, at such a young age, you said it, we we were speaking off air beforehand. It's it's a while ago, so in terms of memories, there may not be as much as people have gone through this more recently. But do you remember how you dealt with being told, other than the nervous laugh, how you, how you sort of coped and took the diagnosis? Not so much, to be completely honest. Um, like I say, when they initially gave me the diagnosis, it was just a nervous laugh, and I had no idea. I mean, I was incredibly poorly at the time, so there were tests going on every day. During the three-month stay in St. James's, there were four visits to intensive care, biopsies, regular blood tests. Um, I mean, there were stages where I couldn't walk. I was in a wheelchair. I couldn't speak. I had to write notes to my parents at stages. So there's, there were no real point at that age that I had a clear idea of exactly what was going on. Everything was completely new, and obviously being so young, a lot of it made no sense to me. I just knew I was unwell. It's a lot to go through at such a young age as well. Do you even, I mean, even now, do you know what actually caused the kidney failure or is it just like a mysterious illness? No, so I've never, I've never had a clear, a clear answer from, from anyone of what could have caused it if there was one specific thing. The only thing they suggested was that I could have had an infection um, or even a general bug that just attacked the weakest organ or weakest organs um, that I had. And that was it. So there's even now I've, I've not got a real clear idea of, of what or why, of what actually caused the kidneys to fail or to start failing. Do you think you ever will, or is it too far gone now? I think it's too far gone. I think the closest I'll ever get is the suggestion that it's maybe an infection um, or a, a general bug and it's just attacked the organ. And it's just beyond repairable by the time I ended up in, in St. James in Leeds. It's good to know that you're now, you're now on the right track again. But going back into your childhood, with having kidney failure, did you end up going on to dialysis at that point? Yes. So, like I said, I was in St James's for roughly three months before. I mean, even during that time, I can't say exactly what they was trying to do. Whether they was trying to manage it, whether they was trying to stop them from failing, or figuring out exactly what was going on. But during that three months, there was no dialysis that I remember. It was towards the back end of that that I ended up going on dialysis. During the stay, there were just so many tests, so many blood tests, uh, different things happening, ending up in intensive care. So eventually, I did end up on, I believe it's hemodialysis. So they'd put a tube into my sort of chest neck area. Mm -hmm. And I was on dialysis three times a week. So it would have been the back end of the stay. I would have been on dialysis while I was still in hospital before being able to go home and then come back and visit three times a week for the hemodialysis. All right, and thinking from what I read, you've been you did both types of dialysis, hemo and peritoneal? Yes. Which one did you prefer? The second one, <laughs> the, the home dialysis. Yeah, so the, the hemodialysis, I, I remember struggling with every time I went, 
every time I went in for that dialysis, I always remember feeling incredibly drained and still incredibly poorly whilst on and after. Um, and I think eventually they decided collectively amongst the, the doctors and my parents that it was too much for me physically to take. Um, and then they, they transferred me over onto, onto the home dialysis. And again, being so young, how did your illness and being on dialysis as a child affect your life throughout your childhood? I mean, obviously, initially, it, it was quite a big a, a big impact on my life. I missed a lot of school. I missed doing a lot of things that kids would usually get to do outside of school, staying over at friends' houses, even just playing out, going to parties, things like that. Um, the home dialysis was better because I had all day, every day. So I was able to go back to school. Uh, I had weekends, but that was for 10 hours every every evening. So obviously I couldn't stay over at anyone's house. There were certain times, family events, parties, we'd have to leave at a certain time to ensure I was home on time for that dialysis. But overall, the home dialysis was much easier physically to cope with and probably more practical as well for my family. We actually went on holiday with the dialysis machine um, a couple of times. So it was the home dialysis would definitely more practical, less painful and e- easier to cope with overall. How did you find taking the machine away with you on holiday? Well, I remember the first time we went away, the machine got damaged, so we had to source another one in, in Spain. But it was it packed up into a solid suitcase, so oh, nice. just like bringing an extra, an extra suitcase with us. I mean, thinking about it, we'd go through three bags of the fluids every evening. So I'm not sure exactly the logistics of that, whether it, my parents had it sent over, whether it was sourced wherever we went. Um, but it was the same. We could have holiday, enjoy enjoy the full days on holiday, and I'd just say them again after being at home in bed at a certain time to be on the dialysis machine. I think it'd be interesting for people to hear that you can you can live, yes, restricted, but you, you, can, you can do things on dialysis. You can go on holiday, go out for the day. I personally didn't go on it myself, as people may know. But like you're saying, with the fluid they were talking about maybe building a shed or using a room in the house to bring these pallets of fluid in. Do you remember that sort of thing? I do. I remember several pallets getting delivered and uh, the ground floor of our house would have a room full of boxes and boxes and boxes of fluids. So I do remember that. Like I said, I I don't think we ever went away for a long period of time while I were on holiday, um, while I were on dialysis, sorry. But we'd still be able to go away for a week. And in terms of the, the fluids... You know, I have no idea how they got there, whether we got them <laughs> while we were there or, or whether they were sent over prior. But I do recall, you know, a wagon coming and delivering several pallets of fluid. I mean, they're, they're quite big bags, and I believe the two or three, two or three bags of fluid in each box, and we go through what twenty-one boxes a week. Wow! So it's a a, a lot to get mm. through. We've spoken a lot about dialysis there, and I know we've we've spoken about it on previous episodes in the podcast. But for those who maybe haven't listened to other ones before or can't remember, would you be able to briefly describe the two types of dialysis that you were on? So the, the hemodialysis, I would, it was in hospital, so the, it'd be on a, a dialysis ward. Uh, there were very large machines, the hemodialysis machines, and you'd have a tube that goes into, I believe, one of the arteries. So the tube would go into my chest, and then I would get connected up to the dialysis machine, I believe for roughly six to eight hours roughly six to eight hours and as far as I'm aware that would drain the blood from your body obviously not all at once slowly it would go through the dialysis machine 
clean it of the toxins and basically do the job that your kidneys should do and then put it back into your body. So like I say, that's one that I found incredibly painful and draining. Now the dialysis at home was for 10, 10 hours every evening and I had the tube in my chest removed and one put into my stomach and that would you'd have three bags of fluid that connect up to the machine every evening. They would flow through your stomach and they'd do the same job but I believe they'd clean it from the end of the blood vessels inside your stomach lining. So they would go through the, through the process of the evening. They'd clean your stomach, go in your stomach, back out the tube and back into the bags. So that's peritoneal dialysis. And again, yes. correct me if I'm wrong, That's it, it basically works by gravity, doesn't it? You've got a bag above your head. There's some, that was described to me when I was almost going on it. It's been almost on a coat hanger above you. And then gravity brings that down into your, into your, your stomach cavity, your peritoneal cavity, and then down onto the floor again. Is that right? No. No. Now, I, I, it's a, I, mean, I mean, I don't know how much has changed. Obviously, this was some time ago, but mine was on a machine. So there was three bags that would sit on top of a machine. It would be above my level. I would be mm. on the bed. The machine would be on a table and the bags would be on top of the machine. But it was actually pumped in using the machine. So you'd have you'd have an awful machine type pumping sound throughout the entire evening but i have seen the ones with the gravity bags kind of like a drip but i've mm. never been on that one and as we say a lot on this podcast we're we're not medical experts no absolutely very few not. people who come on here are medical experts um we're, we're patients talking from experience so if you if you would like more information about dialysis this is one of the few times i'll say this then please do google it health conditions don't google it whatever you do as i've said on another podcast uh professional patients dr google is not your best friend definitely not and and like i say that's why i call it home dialysis i, I cannot remember the exact term for it whether it were the same as as the one you mentioned but just a different form of that but i've always just known it as home dialysis and you were so young as well at the time it's maybe information that would you'd sort of you maybe your parents are taking more with was it eight eight weren't you yeah 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 so between between the age of sort of eight and 12 I was on on the two types of dialysis so I mean even on an evening it, it would be my mum who would connect the machine up every evening and and get it going I mean there were that many buttons on there I, I wouldn't want to start pressing things myself <laughs> and from dialysis to a transplant was the plan to have a live donor so I was on the transplant list um for a good few years while I was on dialysis and eventually my mum decided to have all the tests done, which were quite a long process, have all the tests done. And she turned out to be quite a good match. So the plan was for my mum to donate one of her kidneys. And the, she'd gone through all the tests, but you stay on the list. I believe you stay on the transplant list up until you've had the transplant and everything's confirmed as working correctly. So there, there was... Um, getting to the end sort of stage of confirming all the tests and, and looking at booking operations in. And we received a phone call for a transplant from a, a deceased donor. And we actually went in for the transplant. They were putting cannulas in, taking bloods, getting me prepared for the operation. That, that was a... I remember the whole sort of preparation of the operation being a, a little... It felt a little bit chaotic at... It was awful that just from put, small things like putting the cannula in seemed to go wrong. They had to do it in, in two or three locations. And I remember feeling incredibly distressed throughout that whole process. And eventually they came to us and told us that the, the kidney had been 
damaged in transportation or they couldn't use it for whatever reason it may be. So after that, it was just a case of going back home and um, staying on the list and looking at booking in to have one of my mum's kidneys. It's a lot to take. And before I come on to that that damaged transplant, yes. the, the cannula you mentioned, I I could fully sympathise with that. It was ho- horrible for me. I've, I'm, I don't know what it is, but I've had two of them done before. And both times it's taken three, four, five attempts to get it in. So, so the second time before my transplant, um, I think I had, if I, I mean, I was well out of it and uh, my mind was elsewhere at the point. But I think I had about maybe six or seven local anesthetic injections into my wrist and hand because they were just jabbing away. And after the transplant, and you've been asleep for quite a while then, I can remember waking up being a bit confused as to why I had a dead wrist and a dead hand. Yeah, yeah, cannulas are definitely one of my least favourite favorite things. Blood tests, I don't mind at all. Um, obviously, as you, you may do yourself, I go for them quite regular. But cannulas, they, they just make me cringe, just the small plastic tube being mm. left in your wrist, or the top of your hand especially. And there's, there's not a great deal of movement. It's not so much the pain, it's, it's just... Uh, sort of a, a cringy feeling that it's just sat in there mm, definitely and um, you mentioned the um the damaged transplant how do you deal with sort of the your ticket back to normal life being damaged i mean same again i were incredibly young it was uh quite an awful experience going through the process of preparing for the operation only then to be told that it wasn't going ahead was pretty disappointing but there was a lot going on a lot going on anyway, and I was still incredibly young. I mean, I'd, I'd struggled to remember exactly how I felt at that time. Yeah. I imagine I was incredibly disappointed. Um, felt like everything that had happened in the hours leading up to the operation was a complete waste, having to go through all that for nothing. But ultimately, it was the plan for my mother to donate a kidney a kidney anyway so it wasn't as if it was just a case of waiting not knowing what was happening how long will I be on dialysis for it's still no fun going through going through the process of tests and getting prepared for an operation and and I never recall sort of looking forward to to getting the operation because it was a a really big thing especially at such a young age Mm. I suppose I was just disappointed and um, I just left the hospital and went home and, and then took it from there I can fully see what you mean again with sort of almost not wanting to have it done. When I was nearly at transplant time, um, I can I remember not wanting to have the operation just to hope yeah. that the, the kidney I had, thankfully I wasn't on dialysis, as I said, just to hope that kidney would last as long as possible. Yeah, and it is a, ma- it is a major operation to, um, to go into. It's incredibly nervous laying there wait, waiting to have such a big operation. The call did eventually come. How did that feel for you, the call for the second time? I remember being woke up in the middle of the night. When the call came, they actually had a date booked in for the operation for my mum to donate one of her kidneys. And um, my parents had planned to go away, or for us all to go away for a a week or so, and then come back. So we'd all go away, rest for a week or so, and then come back and we'd both have the operation. It was a day or two days prior to flying when the call came in the middle of the night. And I remember my mum waking me up and telling me, um, I was obviously half asleep. It was in the middle of the night, and then saying we'd be we'd be going in at sort of six seven o'clock in the morning. And I suppose the feeling was I was excited. I'd much prefer to 
you know, have a transplant that way rather than my mum do- donate a kidney just because it's another person close to you going through a mm. quite a big operation as well. And yeah. And and the other thing is, which I didn't mention on the last one, but when when we discussed with with the doctors, my mum donating a kidney, one thing that they have to mention is obviously the worst case scenario for the person donating the kidney, yeah. which which I imagine it's unlikely to happen, but they do have to mention it. So for a child to hear that, it's not it's not the preferred option for your parent Definitely. to go through that operation, especially with the possibility of of something going majorly wrong. So, yeah, going back to getting the call, received the call. I was woke up in, in the middle of the night and told we was going in in the morning. So, very, same again, very nervous and excited at the same time. And thankfully, that transplant was successful. How have things yeah. been going since then? Absolutely fantastic. It's, um, like I say, it's over, over 16 years now since I've had a transplant. And up until March of this year, there's been no real issues. There have been small things. I remember... Following on from the transplant, I stayed in hospital for a few weeks. Then I went home. I was in and out of hospital a little bit over the next 12 months, and they monitor you really closely when you've just had a transplant. But after that, everything's been completely normal, by taking medication every day. I mean, for a, a long period of time, I'd kind of forgot that it all ever happened and just lived a normal life, so I put it to the back of my mind and in some ways took it for granted that I'd actually had such a, a big operation after being so poorly for, for many years. But up until March this year, everything's been fantastic. There's been nothing major, no operations, no major illnesses or stays in hospital. Great stuff. Great stuff. And are you happy talking about March this year? Yeah. Yeah, so I think I believe it was early March and I had a slight, a slight pain in my transplanted kidney. Nothing that worried me because now and again, if sometimes I can just have a very slight dull pain mm. in my transplanted kidney or in that area, and maybe I've I've I slept in a in a strange position and and I've woke up with a slight pain. So I woke up, that was there, and um, I sort of ignored it, carried on working, carried on with my day. And I, rem- I remember it got to around twelve o'clock, and I couldn't remember whether I'd I'd, I'd been to the toilet for a wee or not so I, I spoke to my um I, I called my girlfriend Emily and I, I said I'm not sure I can't remember whether I've been it's normally the first thing I do when I go through the evening as well because I drink that much water so she says do you, you need to phone hospital straight away and find out what's going on it's better to be safe so I spoke to St Luke's in Bradford is where is my where I'm an outpatient now so I spoke to one of the nurses there and they said, look, you come in straight away, we'll do a blood test, we'll get the results back, we'll put it through as urgent and, and we'll see what's going on. So I drunk a litre of water on the way to hospital, thinking by the time I get there, if I drink another litre of water, this is obviously something I wouldn't advise doing, a very silly thing to do. I suppose I was just trying to force myself to go for the yeah. week. So I got there, had the blood test, set off back home, did the same again drunk a load more water on the way home, thinking, well, I'll be desperate to go as soon as I get home if I do this. The pain was getting worse and worse, and I'd still not been, so I was getting a little bit worried at this stage. So it got to around 7 o'clock in the um, evening, and I'd not heard anything from hospital. And uh, Emily said, look, you should really go up to A&E now in Huddersfield, where, we, where we're living at the minute. So just as I, I got in the car to go up to A&E, I received a call from the one of the doctors from... Uh, from St. Luke saying you need to go up to the hospital straight away. The kidney functions dropped quite drastically. So I went up to A&E 
Um, I got seen relatively quickly. They did a scan on my bladder, asked me how much I'd, I'd drunk that day, which were in the region of three to four litres. And they said, that's weird. There's only sort of 50 mil in your oh. bladder, maybe 100 mil in your bladder. So I was in I was in A&E overnight, five, six o'clock in the morning, an ambulance took me back over to, to St. James's, where I got taken over before. I mean, at this stage, I, I genuinely thought, this is it failing now. Yeah. But I'd always been told by hospital it'll be it'll be sort of slow and something we can monitor and we can put you on dialysis before it fails. Mm. It won't be sort of a, a big shock and a big surprise. So when I got over to St. James's, the um they did some more scans, tests, got the results back, and they said the uh, I believe it's called the u- ureter between your kidney and bladder, the tube between the kidney and bladder was blocked, or there was a blockage in there. So it was stopping anything passing from my kidney to my bladder. So the first thing they did was put a drain into my kidney connected to a bag to drain it, uh, which was not a very pleasant experience. No. no, not very pleasant at all. But it was an instant relief after after they initially did it so that they made the little sort of cut, put, put the tube in, connected it to a bag. I was taken back up to the ward and it drained off six litres. Wow. In the um, the first sort of four hours. But that was an instant relief, the 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 pain as soon as it started draining the, the pain just slowly sort of left and then they needed to do some more tests some more scans um the the dye test the ink test where the um they put ink through and see where it ends up or where it stops and they said it had fully narrowed so that that tube between the kidney and the bladder had fully narrowed not allowing anything to pass through at all so so the next plan was to book in for me to have a stent put in so they pass a stent through the tube that they'd already put in, through the kidney, and 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 uh, into that tube to open it to allow it to allow the fluid to pass through to the bladder again. So I was I had the bag. I actually left. I was in hospital for roughly ten days, and I was well. I was I was back to normal, excluding yeah. having a tube and a bag attached to me. But I could manage that myself. I was emptying it myself, monitoring how many liters I was drinking, how much was coming out. So they let me go home for a couple of weeks and then come back in for the stent. I was only in for one night. I had the stent put in, came home the next day, and the kidney function shot back up. Great so stuff. It's roughly sitting around 60% at the minute. And um, it went down to around about 6%. Wow. And and now it's gone back up to, to like I say, in, in and around 60%, which is quite good for a, a 16-year-old transplant Very. kidney. That's impressive. Well, it's great to hear that it's still going well now, all these years later. And after you transplant, this is a sports podcast. Yes. Um, you didn't really take part in sport before your transplant or no. in the years after. What was it that made you decide to start taking part? Um, I suppose it was the, the first lockdown. I mean, I'd always had an interest in not many sports, to be honest. I've had for the duration, for the majority of my life, I've had no interest in sports whatsoever. I'd watch a little bit of boxing, a little bit of MMA, things like that, but no no major interest. And then during the first lockdown, I was furloughed, so I was at home all day, every day. Obviously, we were all told we were incredibly vulnerable not to leave, not to go anywhere, not to visit people, so there wasn't a great deal to do. So I started um, doing some exercises at home, I mean, I've, I now know that I were doing all the exercises wrong. Just, just basic things, <laughs> just basic things like like press ups, squats, sit ups, things like that. I, would, I were doing a high number of them, and I were doing them with very poor form. 
And I sort of decided from then that I wanted to 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 get in to sort of improve my health and fitness. Um, and and I suppose during the lockdown as well, and we've been told we were vulnerable. I, sp- I spent a lot of time thinking about my past, thinking about the illness, the transplant, my general health, having a a bigger appreciation for the position I'm in now, and where I could be in terms of my health, and wanted to look after myself a bit more. So that's what sort of started started me on a a, a sort of fitness journey. I think hearing that will be inspirational to a lot of people and motivational. Because there'll be, there will be a lot of people who, since the transplant, maybe haven't been as active as they want to be. And we've spoken about lockdown and the pandemic on this podcast quite a lot. And as horrible as it's been, a lot of people have found positives that have come out of lockdown. Like we've spoken off air before about the weight loss that you've managed to achieve over the last yeah. couple of years. But that, yeah. I mean, that that's amazing. It, that's, it's, it's all, and it is all off of the, the, the back of the lockdown. There's a... Like you say, there's a lot of people who have seen a lot of good from uh, from being in lockdown and, and from COVID, and you've got to see the positives. And, and that it, it did all begin from there. So it, it gave everybody a lot of time to reflect. Definitely. Once you got started and you maybe learnt more about the correct form to have and which exercises to do, did you set yourself any goals or targets? And I, I ne- the only the only I never set anything specific to to try and achieve. There were yeah. no specific weight weight that I wanted to get to. The only thing that I wanted to achieve was to get fitter mm-hmm. and and eat healthier, put better fuel into my body. And I suppose everything else came along with that. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. 
And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Ah. Um, so eventually, after, after the lockdown, I started training at a private gym in Huddersfield with a personal trainer. Started training there just once a week, very sort of slow sessions, focusing more on form than anything else. Now I train there a, a couple of times a week down there. It's quite intense, sort of functional, functional workouts, um, and I've been doing that for maybe twelve months now. Let's go on to that then, and the the MMA training, that sort of thing. What made you take up? Because I believe it's jujitsu and grappling is your main area, yes. isn't it? Yes. So I've always. I've always, out of all the sports, I've always been more interested in, in combat sports, mixed martial arts mainly, a little bit of boxing. Never a major fan. I couldn't say really lists of, of uh, professional boxers and, and MMA fighters, but just from sort of a spectator point of view, that's the sport that I would prefer to sit and watch. And I always spoke about starting something or, you know, you know, starting at a local gym, whether it be boxing, Thai boxing, jiu-jitsu, um, and I'd always speak to my brother about it, but I never actually did anything about it. I just spoke about doing it. So for Christmas 2019, I believe, my brother actually paid for 10 sessions at a local, a local MMA gym. So he, he, well, it was my brother and a friend, they paid for 10 sessions, which kind of forced me to do it then. I couldn't just talk about it anymore because he'd already paid for the session, so I had to actually show up. So I went to a couple of sessions very early, sort of January time, and then obviously everything shut down. Off the back of going to those sessions is probably partly why I started working out a bit at home to try and increase my fitness. It was mainly grappling and jiu-jitsu. And then same again when things opened open back up again. I started going sort of once a week, which soon turned into twice a week and three times a week. And, and now I go four times a week pretty consistently. Um, very addictive, very addictive. And get going. But yes, well, I'd, I'd probably never have started if it wasn't for my brother and my friend paying for 10 sessions. I'd have probably continued to speak about going. And I think grappling and jiu-jitsu is the best sport for me to take up because there's no actual striking. Yeah. Whereas boxing, kickboxing, Thai boxing and, and MMA is there's a, a lot of striking involved, kicks, knees, elbows, and uh, it'd be more than irresponsible of me to stand in front of someone while they try and, and connect their shin bone with my transplanted kidney. Definitely, definitely. And even though there's no striking, because of the nature of the sport and the fact that you you're gonna be hitting the ground, you you there's physical contact in there. There is, yeah. Were you apprehensive before starting? And have you had to adapt because of your transplanted kidney? Um, I was very nervous because I had no idea what I was actually going into. I mean, with, with the striking side of things, it's obviously you can do pad work, bag work and, and light sparring. And I thought it would be more MMA than actual grappling and jiu-jitsu. But it turned out to be jiu-jitsu. And, and like you say, there's, there's a lot of contact involved, but there's no sort of direct hits or direct impact to that area. And uh, every, everybody at the gym, I never sort of went in and announced, oh, listen, guys, I've had a transplant. Please treat me differently to everyone else because that's the last thing I wanted. I didn't want to show up and, and, and people 
you know, grapple with me a different way to anyone else based yeah. on that. But everybody is very friendly and very understanding of of new people coming into the gym. There's no sort of gym bullies in there. There's no one trying to to really hurt or cause damage to anyone else. Everyone's just focused on improving, helping other people improve and improving themselves. And you need that sort of environment around you. I know you didn't want to go in and say, this is what I've had done. This is my current condition. Yeah. But they are the sort of people you need to surround yourself with in any sport. Oh, definitely. Everyone's very, very sort of positive. And, you know, you get nice comments at, at the end of more sessions and pe- people have a positive outlook and everyone's there as a, a, a real team trying to help each other progress. Obviously, everyone wants to, to get better themselves, but there's a big focus on helping other people halfway through practicing a technique people will help you do it better or make small changes to improve so it is a really nice environment i'm sure everybody there or most people there will now have a pretty clear idea of my previous illness uh, just from there's been t- i've had time off when i was in hospital for the stent and they'll see on social media i obviously do do bits and bats for kidney research uk and try and raise money and awareness so they'll have an idea but i still like to think i'm Tret no differently. Good to hear as well. You can you can you can go and do that and just be be one of the group. Yeah. Now we've had some listener questions in about MMA, uh, jujitsu, grappling, and yes. if anyone wants to send in some questions for the future, then make sure you're following Transplants Take on Sport on social media. Instagram and Facebook are at Transplants Take on Sport Pod, and Twitter is at TTOS Pod. Uh, the day before recording, I'll post on all of those pages saying who's coming on, what their sport is, maybe a bit about a a recent achievement, for example, and you'll have a chance to send in any questions you'd like, and then I will ask them to said guest. So we've had a few in this time. Uh, first one comes from Joanna, who says, um, this is an interesting point, I went back and had to clarify some of this. Um, through your, your jiu-jitsu grappling, have you, ever, have you noticed any back pain, and do you find that your, medic, your medication may be linked to that and hinder your progress in any way? No, I've I've not noticed any back pain. Um, I've had back pain previously. Uh, I've done a manual job for a lot of years, so I always assumed it was from that. But since training, if anything, I've had I've had less less physical pain. I've I've I mean, I do a lot of other things to try and have you know generally good health. I go for a sports massage once a month. I eat healthy. I stretch. I avoided stretching for a long time, but but I stretch quite regular. So no, I've not noticed any back pain whatsoever. It was interesting when I heard this because I was I was unaware. The medication mentioned was mycophenolate. I don't know if you're on that. I I'm am. Not. No, I am. And it's it's interesting. Again, I'm not. It came in quite quite close to the time we started recording, so I haven't had a chance to research this any further. So please take what I'm about to say with a pinch of salt. And if you are interested, as I said before, have a look online at some reputable sources or ask your doctor. Um, I've been to been to some physio appointments recently with my ankles, which. There's been a lot of injuries to over the years. Um, and all that has been linked back to my back. Right. I take my, I've been taking mycophenolate for over two years now. So maybe there's something there. It's something I'll ask next time. Possibly. I mean, there's lots of side effects to all the, the medication. I'll be honest, I've never looked too much into any of them because there's just too many. Yeah. And I, d- I don't want to start overthinking into into too many little different different things. There's, I've opened the leaflets that come with the medication once or twice before and I've closed them back up and put them straight back in box. You can convince yourself as well that you've got all the side effects. You can. 
Yeah, def- definitely. There's, uh, like I say, there's so many side effects, and, and because, it, like yourself, we take such a, a variety of medication every day, and it's not like we can choose to stop taking it because of side effects. So I try, I try to avoid looking. Joanna also asks, how much of MMA is about mindset? Um, I mean, I'm a co- absolute complete beginner. Even though I've been doing, I've been doing maybe eighteen months now, but I'm still an absolute complete beginner. I think. I think probably most people who are at a much better level than me would say the majority is mindset, showing up, keeping going, staying positive. And uh, I suppose sometimes the hardest part can be showing up on a bad day when you don't feel like training, you don't feel like going in and convincing yourself to to actually go and crack on. Obviously, physically, you know, physical is a, a massive, massive part of it. But yeah, ment- mentally as well, it's... Um, it can be challenging to to keep going. Like I say, mainly when you just don't feel like showing up to training to convince yourself to keep going. Because if you miss, like I've missed, I've missed time from being ill and so on. And even if you miss a week or a few days, as soon as you go back, you can physically tell like you've missed that time. I mean, you've taken part in a jujitsu competition now. I have. Yeah, I'm presuming that'll be there'll be a lot of mindset going into that. Yeah. How does how do those competitions work? So I've only ever I've only ever done one, and it's the first competition in any form that I've ever done in my entire life. And it was like a, to- a tournament format. So there'd be different weight classes um, split up into sort of different age groups and different levels. So there's there's gi and no gi. So there's jujitsu, traditional jujitsu, you wear a gi kind of like the uniform you see people who do karate wear. And there's different belt levels. So depending on what level you are, what weight you are and what age you are, you go into a different category. And it'd be a, t- a tournament format, so you could get in, lose your first match, and that's it, you're out. Or you'd win, go through again, and continue to go through, and then there'd be, there'd be free people to place finish, so there'd be gold, silver, and, and bronze. Uh, there's lots of other formats and lots of other competitions. I don't know a great deal about them all. I mean, is, is the plan to do more? I'd like to do more, yeah, definitely. I... Um, I'd, I'd like, I don't think I'll do another one this year. There's um, one of the guys at the at the gym who's a purple belt, a really good grappler. He's on a, a show called Grapple Fest, which I, I believe is the, the biggest sort of jiu-jitsu grappling show in the UK. He's on, so I'll be going to that just to watch and support him. But myself, I don't think I'll do another one this year, maybe early next year. I'd like to do around four a year. I think I think four a year is achievable. You've got time to, to train and prepare for those, work on things you may want to improve in between as well. Yeah, definitely. So like I said, I train, I train, I go to jiu-jitsu four times a week and I, I train sort of strength and conditioning twice a week. We've got two dogs, so I go on regular walks as well. Um, there's not, It's not like in MMA and, and boxing, I believe in boxing as well, people will cut quite a lot of weight. So, so they'll lose quite a lot of weight in a short period of time. Uh, obviously, there's advantages to doing that. Where in grappling, it's not so much... It's, people do do it, but I, I don't think it's as a. I don't think it plays a, a big part in it like it does in MMA in cutting weight. Uh, so I mean, the last competition I did were at seventy six kilo, and on the morning I, I weighed around seventy two kilo. So I think I, I got confused and got it the wrong way around. <laughs> <laughs> supposed to be slightly above and get and get down to that, but that's that's not what I did. Uh, there's a, a few things I'd definitely change and try and improve on for the next competition. We've had another couple of listener questions in, and I've saved these to the end because it's a it links to a question I ask a lot of guests on this podcast. Uh, 
Ryan says, will it cause any damage to his kidney if you get punched and kicked to it? Uh, and Nathan says, how do you keep your kidney safe during training? We've talked about protection a lot on this podcast. Do you do you wear anything? No. So I don't wear anything. Obviously, there's no striking, so I'll never get punched or, or kicked in, in that area or anywhere, I hope. Um, but in terms of wearing anything, no, I have had a, a look at a couple of things, but there's no major impact. I suppose I'm always conscious of it. I always know it's there. There's certain things where there could be weight applied to that area, mm. um, which I suppose the, the way I train will... I'll adapt slightly different to other people because I'd be very conscious of that area. So if there was anything, any sort of pressure or anything to go in that area, I would move to obviously avoid that, whereas a lot of people would probably carry on and work from whatever position they're in. It's interesting. And a lot of us in this position do have to adapt to to play our sports of choice. In terms of protection, if anybody is looking for a transplanted kidney protector, if you go to herokey.co, that's h h e r o k i dot c o, and use the code thanks lewis zero five zero five two one. That will get you twenty dollars off their kidney shield, which is a specially made belt with um, a foam pad that hardens on impact to protect your transplanted kidney. I wear it for cricket, and got to say this legally, uh, the company said this to me. Uh, legally, they can't say it will protect you for high-impact sports, such as martial arts. So if you are looking yeah. for a, a kidney protector for any what, any sport that may be, whether it's cycling, football, cricket like I wear it for, which again, legally, you can't say that it will protect you from the impact of a cricket ball. It's made out of similar material, but I don't think, don't think the company or myself want to get any trouble into any trouble for promoting this and uh, it'd, be, it'd be misused. And speaking of... Um, discount codes ways that i can help you get some discount i'd like to say a massive thank you to neon cricket who once again have kindly sponsored me for the 2022 season uh, if you'd like to get any cricket equipment from there and i'm hoping they start doing the the clothing again uh, I, I had a hoodie on before we started recording uh, that was made by them taking it off also got a cap um so if you'd like anything from there christmas is coming up if there's a cricket fan in your life um you get your pre-orders in before christmas um and the code for 20, actually the code, I've not been given the code yet. Uh, they are going to be hooking me up with the code for you all to use. Uh, and as soon as I get that, I'll let you know on the social media. So make sure you're following on there. And speaking of returning uh, returning um, features, sponsors, I've decided to bring back a sports-based quiz similar to the one that long-term listeners may have heard in episode one that I did with Stephen Harrison. That was a game of the football journeyman game, as we'd called it then. Um, this time, uh, it'll be a slightly different quiz, and it'll be ba- based on a sport of your choosing. So each week, I'll ask the guests four questions based on a sport of their choosing. Oliver, your sport is MMA. There will be one which is higher question, one true or false, one what happens next, and one who am I. The aim is to score as many points as possible, and I'll be keeping score as the podcasts go by, so you'll be competing against previous and future guests on the podcast. Oliver, you'll be setting the bar. Oh God! Hopefully not, <laughs> hopefully not too low then. I mean, the the questions it's going to be loosely based on the sport. They're not going to be. Right, yeah. Hopefully, they're not too high trivia questions. I mean, I'm yeah. I'm not very knowledgeable on UFC. The UFC was your your show yeah, of choice. Neither am I, and it's my choice. <laughs> uh, but we'll go through it. Yeah. So, question one: Former WWE wrestler CM Punk tried his hand in the UFC, but which is higher? 
the number of times he won the WWE Championship or his total wins in the UFC? I'd say it's uh, the number of times he's won his WWE Championship. You'd be absolutely right. He's won two WWE Championships and his record, his record in the UFC is two fights, zero wins, one loss and one no contest. Went back to WWE pretty quickly. <laughs> That's one point on the board so far. Good start. Good start. Question two. True or false? Ring announcer Bruce Buffer is a black belt in Korean martial art Tang Soo Do. Oh. I've no idea. I'll guess true. Once again, you are correct. Look at is it Tang Soo Do or Tang Soo Do? I have absolutely no idea. Because I'll be honest, I only wrote that question so I could say this. That is, in fact, true. Brew Boo Do Do Tang Soo Do. <laughs> and if, I imagine if I called Bruce Buffer Brew Boo to his face, he would probably kick the life out of me. <laughs> two out of two so far, that is a two-point buffer going into the rest of the quiz. There we go, we're not doing bad. Question three, what happens next? And I know what people may be thinking... Uh, how are we going to do what happens next on an audio-only podcast? Uh, I'll, I'll do my best to try and describe the scene, what was going on. And if I can, I will post the post the clip onto the social media pages, which are all linked in the show notes, uh, hopefully without violating any copyright laws. So what happens next? And this is veering away from UFC, but still MMA. At the Shamrock 285 event in March 2017... Axel Cazares, I hope I pronounced that right, and Alan Vazquez both planned to throw right-handed punches at the same time. But what happens next? This is multiple choice. Is it A, both punches connect with the referee, knocking him out? Is it B, the punches connect with the heads of both fighters, resulting in a double, in a double knockout? Or C, their fists connect, leading to a measly friendly fist bump? I'm going to go with option B, double knockout. Correct again, three out of three. Um, it is B. Uh, Alan Vazquez was then declared the winner as he was the first to get up. <laughs> so uh, if I can, that clip will be on the social media once this has been released. Three out of three so, so far. This is for perfect score, four out of four on the first go. This is a who am I? So with this, I'll give you four clues and then you can have a guess. And you've got three guesses in total. Each incorrect guess, I'll add an extra clue. Okay. So, who am I? This person is a featherweight UFC fighter who was born in Honolulu, Hawaii. Max Holloway. You've got it already. You've got it already. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to go on to say the record of 28 fights, 22 wins, 10 by knockout, and six losses. And I don't know if anyone knew this. His real first name is Jerome. Is it? Apparently so. Well, I knew who he was, but I didn't know his real first name. It is Max Holloway. Perfect four out of four. I will, I'm moving the podcast up up to a different room in a, a makeshift studio. Uh, so I get a whiteboard, and Oliver, you'll be on there with a perfect four out of four. That's Setting the bar very, that. very high for future That's, guests. Yeah. I've surprised myself. <laughs> Although reasonable questions set by set by yourself there. I'm hoping they were, they were the right balance for someone who doesn't know much about yeah. UFC. Yeah. I mean, going on from that, another question... You've done quite a lot in the short space of time that you've been taking part in regular sport. We've spoken about your MMA, your jiu-jitsu competition, and you've also you've done Tough Mudder for kidney research, haven't you? Yes, so I did that with Emily in 2018, I believe. That was probably the first actual sort of physical challenge that, that I ever had. And we, uh, I remember booking it, and I kind of booked it 
thinking that we'd both start training to prepare for it. And uh, we, we, we booked it and we did absolutely no training whatsoever. So we, uh, I remember showing up, we were both very nervous but excited to, to get going and have a go. And it was 10 mile with 24 obstacles. And the, the obstacles ranged from crawling under barbed wire to jumping in sort of a, a container full of ice and water, um, crawling through a, the edge of a, a muddy lake and, th- and things like that. It were, uh, it, it were really fun. It was fun. I don't think we moved for the next two days. We, 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 we raised just over a thousand pound for for kidney research well doing done. that, and a, a coffee morning as as well. But a few a few people came to and donated. So, so yeah, I've actually booked Tough Mudder again, um, but this time to do it with a, a few work colleagues. Only it's been delayed because of COVID. So we're looking at next year for that. So I'll probably start the fundraising fundraising back up early early January. It looks January like a lot of fun. One. It is. It is. It's, it's incredibly fun. It's a big challenge as well, because I'd, I'd never, I'd never ran, let alone run ten mile through muddy fields and crawling under things and crawling through mud and and things like that. But it, it, it was an enjoyable thing to do together, helping each other and pushing each other and and raising money for the charity along the way. I've also seen that uh, you walked up Ben Nevis as well, haven't you? Yeah. How was that? Um, not as uh, tough. Yeah, I mean, it it was tough. I, like I say, we've got two dogs, so we do a lot of walking. I think what made that difficult was having absolute... We camped out the night before. Right. Myself, my brother and a friend, and we got maybe a combined sleep of an hour or two. It was horrendous. I, I don't think I'll be doing much camping anytime <laughs> soon. And because we didn't sleep, we sort of got up at five in the morning, got a shower and set off. It was a challenge, and, and every corner you turn, it looks like you're nearly there. You, you can see the highest point. And then you walk for another hour, another hour and a half, and it looks like you're at the highest point again, but you're not. And then you carry on doing the same thing, the same thing. It were uh, it were really good though, really enjoyable. And same again, leg pain for a good couple of days after that <laughs> one. A good couple of days of serious leg pain. But I'd like to go back and do that again. Are there any other sort of walking, hiking challenges that you'd like to do in the future? Um, there's nothing specific that I'd, that I'd like to do. Like I said, I'd definitely like to, to go do... Ben Nevis again, but I'd like to do it with my family and I'd like to do it with my dogs. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd like to do Snowdon. There's, there's a, f- a few sort of the, the free peaks in the UK that I'd like to do. But other than that, there's nothing really. Yorkshire free peaks, I mean, I might do that at some stage, but there's nothing that I'm looking at doing sort of anytime soon. And it's a bad time of year to be walking up Ben Nevis oh, and yeah. Snowdon and places like that. It's, it'd be a silly thing to do. I mean, when we, when we walked up Ben Nevis, it was summer. It was absolutely red hot. We packed quite well because we researched it a little bit. So we had food, we had water, we had different types of clothing because it's very warm and then you get to the top. And as we were wandering back down, there were people walking up in jeans, trainers, like big puffer jackets with half a bottle of water between three of them. I thought, these guys, there's absolutely no chance they're getting to the top of there. It's, uh, it's, it, is, it is quite a difficult challenge. It's the sort of thing, more sort of the the big height. I'd like to do that sort of thing more in the future. It's, it just it seems quite as challenging as it is. It seems quite peaceful and relaxing. It is, yeah. It's not it's not high intensity, although it does get painful after a few hours of walking up a steep incline. But it's nice when you get to the top and you can spend a bit of time up there. And especially if it's clear, it were very clear when we got to the top. So the views were unbelievable. Um, and then we just we stayed up there for a, a while, had had some food had a bit to drink and, and set off back down. Out of all the 
the achievement, the sporting achievements over the last two years since you started to to get fit again, which is is a, a great achievement. The fact that you've you managed to lose weight, you've you've got your life, you've you've changed your lifestyle to massively be the best version of you and look after your transplant for as long as possible, which I think is is inspirational to a lot of people listening, myself included. Um, what would you say is your greatest sporting achievement so far? I mean, there's not been many, if I'm honest. <laughs> it's probably the, the three things that you've already mentioned, which would be the only kind of achievements, other than getting going, which yeah. which is the biggest thing. Getting started is the biggest thing, but the doing Tough Mudder with, with Emily, that was the first sort of real physical challenge that, that I ever did. I felt like I achieved something after that. Walking up Ben Nevis... Um, and the jiu-jitsu competition just doing a competition I mean there's a lot of there's a lot of people who do it from a young age it sort of becomes normal like um, my stepson Ashton he's nine he plays he, tra- he trains jiu-jitsu twice a week he trains football once a week and he plays a game every Sunday and it's it's just it's completely normal he just shows up they go on the pitch they play the game competing is is not a big thing to them whereas I'd never done anything up until the age of 26 so I'd, I'd, and and then I did my first competition which like I say there are a lot of things I probably should have done differently didn't go as as, as well as I, I liked it to uh, or would have liked it to but just doing it just starting do it do it doing that initial competition that that, that felt like a really good achievement it's, it's one you can be proud of because now you've you've started it you've as you said it's, it's quite addictive you've got the bug now and there's there's yeah. more to come over the years I think that's the biggest step and the other thing is 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 improving and, and doing things slightly differently each time. I mean, on the first competition, I strangely felt no nerves whatsoever until I was... It, I mean, I was stood at the side of the mat waiting to go on. I felt absolutely fine until they called me onto the onto the mat and then I was like an absolute nervous wreck. So, so I grappled completely differently to how I would in the gym. I would probably... I was probably very stiff and nervous and didn't do any of the things I'd normally do, which which didn't didn't uh, leave me with a very good result in the end. But just taking the first step to doing it to actually sort of... It's, I think that's the hardest part is starting. Absolutely. Oliver, it's, it's been a pleasure to chat to you today and your attitude on transplant life is is really remarkable. It's great, great to hear that you're doing so well you. and that you, you're enjoying your life. Uh, one more question before we go, and it's the one that I ask everyone at the end of the podcast. What's one piece of advice you'd give to someone facing a transplant? Oh, one piece of advice. You've got a long pause out of me there because there's, <laughs> there's, there's that many pieces of advice that, that I could give. Someone who's 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 waiting for a transplant or having a transplant. Let's go for, it, it's upcoming. People may be listening to this as I is the reason I started this, wanting to know what sort of sporting opportunities are available after you've had a transplant. I think after you've had a transplant, re- recover as, as quickly as you can. Don't rush into anything, but at the same time, don't delay starting something new. You know, wh- whether it be going on regular walks, whether it be running, grappling, cricket, football, whatever it may be, once you're fully recovered, I'd, I'd say just start, get going. The hardest part is is starting, is walking in the first time, walking in the gym for the first time, or trying to run for the first time. That that's the most difficult part. So don't delay it. Obviously, recover, recover fully before. Don't rush into anything. But then don't 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 let it sit on your mind for a long period of time before going. I mean, I could have been doing what I'm doing now for ten years, ten years if if I just started, if I just took the first big step. I completely agree with you. And there we go. Thanks again, Oliver, for coming on. If you're enjoying the podcast, 
uh, please make sure you tell your friends, spread the word. Let's try and grow the audience as big as we can and get as many people involved as possible. Um, if you'd like to get in touch, whether that be to just send a message to volunteer yourself to come on the podcast and share your story, if that's something you'd like to do. Or if you think there's somebody who I should be getting in contact with to come on the podcast as a guest, you can do so via the social media pages, which are linked in the show notes, or you can email transplantstakeonsport at gmail.com. Apple Podcasts is the most used app to listen to the podcast on. So if you are listening on there, it would mean a huge amount to me if you could rate the podcast five stars on the show page. That would really help me out as it makes allows more people to discover the podcast and it gets it further up in the search terms on Apple Podcasts. If you don't think it's five stars... I'd, I'd rather you let me know rather than going and reviewing it on there because the, the higher percentage of, of five-star reviews really does help to, to as I said, to, to bump it up the listings. Um, I know I've plugged this before, uh, and again, no no pressure to do this, but there is a link at the bottom of the show notes, and it's also the voice you hear at the start. It's not me that goes, love this podcast. <laughs> and that is the ACAST supporter feature. So if you would like to contribute to the podcast and support it financially, then that would be much appreciated. Again, no pressure, but there's a link at the bottom of the show notes to do that. Thank you once again to my guest today, Oliver Patrick Cahill. I've been Lewis Daniels, and you've been listening to Transplant's Take on Sport. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.